Hey, what's up everyone? Henry here from Disruptive Money Management and today we're going to be talking about the magic number. That's right, the magic number needed for you to retire. I touched on this topic a few episodes back when I talked about the Social Security Trust Fund and how it's rapidly dwindling. Within that episode, I spoke briefly about calculating whether your retirement portfolio can sustain a drop in Social Security. Many comments and questions rolled in on the actual number and how much a person needed to retire. So if you ever wondered what that magic number is for retirement, then here's the answer. It depends. It depends on you, what your lifestyle is like, what your expectations are, and what your sources of retirement income will be. So the topic of today's podcast will be about retirement income and how I, as a financial advisor, work through this question with my clients. I'll take you through step-by-step my entire process on determining whether an individual is on track for retirement And I'll share with you all of the questions that I asked so that you know what you should be asking yourself. At the end of the day, if you know what the questions are and what your retirement scenario looks like, then it's just a matter of determining whether you have saved enough to afford that lifestyle. And if you're still saving, then whether or not you're on track for retirement. Understanding who you are as an individual and a household is the first step in creating a financial retirement plan. When creating your financial plan, it is essential to understand that you must plan for longevity because how long your financial plan lasts will impact how much you need to have saved. It's easy enough to know that a retirement nest egg that needs to supply a steady stream of income for 20 to 25 years is much more different than a time frame of 10 or 15 years. Now, most of us probably won't know when we're going to kick it. Some of us may have concerns about family history or whatnot, but I can tell you that With our society embracing modern medicine and a healthy lifestyle, people are living much longer. So how do you plan for the unknown? Well, you plan for a longer time frame. In my profession, we generally use an actuarial insurance tables. And actuarial tables tell us that a male retiring in 2021 is expected to live up until about age 91. A female retiring now is expected to live up until about age 94. I'm going to let that sink in for a bit. 91 and 94. Those are some big numbers, am I right? But are they really though? Think about it for a second. How many in your life do you know are pushing into that range? Now, obviously, those in that age range are perhaps one or two generations before you. Maybe it's your grandfather or father even. Those who are age 90 this year were born in 1930, right around the Great Depression era. If you can imagine individuals from that era surviving through all of this, then the question remains, why shouldn't we expect you to live up until that age? Again, with modern medicine, advancing technology, and a health-conscientious lifestyle, I wouldn't be surprised if we start pushing the average into the mid-90s shortly. So what do you do when the average individual is expected to spend roughly 25 years in retirement? How do you account for inflation? How do you know you wouldn't run out of money in retirement? What happens when Social Security drops by 25% 13 years from now? What about long-term care? Has that concern been addressed in your financial plan? When I meet with someone new, my very first thought is that I'm running the time frame in my mind, right? I'm, I'm thinking to myself how old or young this individual is and my time frame for planning. I'm guessing not just about the time frame for retirement, but also the time frame until retirement. Both these things combined give me an idea of what we're working with. For instance, 
If I'm working with someone who is 60 years old and wants to retire at full retirement age, then I know we have a window of approximately seven years to play any catch up if the retirement nest egg isn't where it needs to be. I also know that the nest egg will need to sustain withdrawals for approximately 25 years. Now, more and more of my new clients are younger individuals in their late 30s and early 40s. Most of them are coming out of tech who have seen their portfolios hit seven figures from stocks going public. And they're now wondering if retirement is possible. Again, it just comes down to numbers. If the individual is 40 years old and the retirement plan is about perhaps three to five years away, then we're planning for a retirement time frame of almost 50 years. Knowing the time frame until retirement is meaningful because those years are the years in which we can make dramatic changes to the outcome if time is on our side. If you're 60 years old and the probability of retiring the way you want is low, then we know we can do one of three things. One, lower your expectations. Two, delay retiring for a few more years. Or three, increase your nest egg. Whichever of the three options that you want to take is entirely up to you. If you have a specific picture of what retirement looks like and the numbers don't add up, then you have to lower your expectations. Perhaps that means downsizing your home in retirement or going on fewer trips around the world. If lowering your expectations is something you're unwilling to do, then delaying retirement by a few years is the next option. That gives you more time to pay off debt if that's a problem or put more towards your nest egg in the highest earning years. Working past full retirement age of 67 means you get an 8% increase on your Social Security. If you delay until age 70 for the maximum available amount, you could dramatically change your retirement lifestyle with that extra money. And that's not to mention the significant difference it could make to your nest egg if you add three years of 401k contributions. Lastly, increasing your nest egg is the third and final option if your retirement numbers are not where you want them to be. It could mean spending less now so that more of your disposable income can be redirected to your retirement account. If you're over age 50, the IRS allows you to contribute up to $26,000 a year to your 401k. I was working with a couple in their late 50s who want to retire at full retirement age, and their current plan wasn't possible because they hadn't saved enough money. This couple was pulling in $300,000 in combined earnings, but they only contributed about 5% of their salary to the 401k. 5% each. Neither of them was hitting the IRS limit, and the response was that they just never looked at it. Someone had told them that the company match only goes up to 5%, which was all they heard. So, for numerous years, this couple just took more taxable income than they needed and spent it. So, redirecting that additional income, accepting a change in lifestyle while working so that more money can go into tax advantaged retirement accounts was what they were willing to do to make sure they retire at age 67. The first two things to always keep top of mind is that understanding your retirement can last until the age 90s, and understand how much time you have until you decide to retire. Knowing those two numbers will determine how much time frame you have for saving until retirement. From there, it's a matter of applying math. Let's say your nest egg number right now at age 60 is half a million dollars, and you and your spouse are both willing to max out your 401k every year for the next seven years. That's $26,000 per person for seven years, which comes out to $182,000 each. Or the equivalent of $364,000 combined. 
an individual that is earning $150,000 would have approximately $1,000 taken out of your paycheck if you receive 26 checks a year. Now, if you are willing to forego your current lifestyle so that you max out your 401k each and every year, those are the numbers that it would account to. Now, of course, let's not forget the company match because most employers offer a match. Assuming it's a safe harbor match, which is relatively common, that's approximately 4% of your salary. So in this case, that's another $42,000 per person over the seven-year time frame. If we add it all up, we're now looking at $448,000 saved over the next seven years. But that's just money saved. We haven't even thrown in the growth potential. At a 5% average annual rate of return, the potential future account balance between the two individuals would be just under $1.3 million. At a 6% average rate of return, it's about $1.35 million. And at 7%, the potential future account balance is approximately $1.4 million. The difference in saving more money and giving that balance seven years to grow is a difference of $362,000 more in the retirement nest egg for this couple who went from contributing 5% of their salary to the IRS maximum. The question then becomes, is that enough? Is $1.4 million enough for two people to retire at age 67 with a projected retirement time frame of 25 years? The answer again is, it depends. Going back to lifestyle, you have to ask yourself, how much does that cost? What are your annual expenditures when it comes to your life? If you haven't sat down and looked at the numbers, now is the best time to do so. Some examples of those expenses are your monthly housing expense. Is your mortgage expected to be paid off by retirement age? Or are you still going to be carrying that amount? Your annual homeowner's insurance and property taxes car payment, if any, your auto insurance premium and gas expense with the assumption that gas expense will decrease if you are currently a commuter to work. What about the utilities for your household? How much do you spend on gas, electric, water, sewer, and waste management? These expenses don't go away at retirement, and in fact, some may even go up. You may end up using more gas and electricity because you're home more often. What is your cost for health and fitness? What is your cost for groceries? What about dining out? And how about entertainment? Do you grab a couple of movies a month or head into the city to catch a show? Tally these entertainment expenses together. Now, don't forget about your household entertainment. How much do you spend a month on cable television, internet, Hulu, Netflix? What are your wireless expenses? Understanding what your fixed expenses are is crucial in helping you determine whether or not you have saved enough for retirement. As you tally up these items, just try to reflect on what you pay for every month. These fixed expenses, as I call them, are probably going to stick around even in retirement. Sure, you can decrease some like gas, but others will offset the decrease. So it's always a good idea to know what the fixed expenses are. Now, move on to your variable expenses, which are expenses that don't occur every month. Perhaps it's that vacation that you would like to have. I mean, what exactly does retirement look like for you? Is it heading out to the cabin every summer? Is it taking a cruise once a year? Think about those things that you want to do and apply a monetary cost to them. 
Perhaps it's ten grand for a retirement cruise, all in, and let's say it's another two thousand dollars to fly you and your significant other to where your kids live during the holiday season. When it comes to your variable costs, think about costs that will creep up, things that will automatically come up, like car maintenance repairs, right? These things you can never account for.、Um, perhaps it's an annual health exam or new glasses. These things will keep coming up. Whatever that case may be, add the variable costs together, and you'll have a rough approximation of what your annual spending would be in retirement. Now, don't forget to factor in healthcare expenses. The average healthcare expense for today's retiree is about six thousand dollars a year. This is your Part B costs, your prescription drugs, copays, etc. One of the most significant healthcare expenses in retirement is long-term care. Long-term care. Cost varies based on the type you need, whether it's assisted living, in-home care, or acute care. The national average is about forty-eight hundred a month, but you'll want to adjust according to your location. The tricky part of long-term care is that, of course, you don't know when you're going to need it. When I run my plans, it is generally for one year towards the end of term. So, for a male, I want to make sure we have enough set aside. For long-term care, when the individual hits 91 and 94 for the female counterpart, I will say that I have a general dislike towards long-term care plans. Insurance salesmen often sell long-term care plans with scare tactics and without any fundamental understanding or promotion of financial wellness. They always come at you asking how you're going to afford 4,800 a month if you go into long-term care. They'll scare you into a policy by telling you that your only other option at that point would be to burden your children. They'll let you know that you can buy coverage for pennies on a dollar and never have to worry about it ever again. The problem is that which they don't tell you, or usually gloss over, relatively quickly. Almost all long-term care policies require that you cannot do three out of five things before the policy kicks in. The guidelines have an annual daily maximum coverage limit, so if you're living in a high cost of living area, it may not be enough. Long-term care policies also have a maximum allowable amount, so the coverage stops once you hit that total amount. It's hard to gauge whether you're going to take advantage of the benefits or whether you can even fully realize it. As I said, insurance is for that unknown. Long-term care policies can be very costly. And history has shown that insurance companies are very good at raising premiums, so you have to consider that. What happens when you start a policy and become unable to afford it ten years later? Do you just cancel it or cash it in for a paid-up policy? These variables for the changes can ultimately be completely out of your control. This is why I always recommend individuals self-fund their long-term care where possible. Almost all of the individuals I work with self-fund for long-term care rather than buying a policy. The truth is, when you need to go into long-term care, that's pretty much where you're going to be. It's not like you're going to be spending forty-eight hundred for assisted living on top of the five grand that you need for household expenses. You literally won't have any other costs at that point. Self-funding your long-term care can be accomplished by setting aside money early in or even in retirement in a particular place earmarked just for that. Realistically speaking, you won't need as much money in the later years of retirement compared to the earlier stages. I know we all have this great and grand plan of traveling all over the world, but really, how many years do you think you'll have before you start slowing down? 
maybe not age 70, but when you're in the 80s, what's the likelihood that you'll want to hop on a plane for an around-the-world flight? In my experience working with numerous clients, the body will start slowing down as you enter into the mid to late 70s, and you'll want to stay home more. At that point, you'll be spending less than what your retirement essay can generate, and ideally, saving a lot. That money can then be recirculated back into your portfolio for growth. Your growth-oriented portfolio would be later applied towards late-stage medical expenditures. Circling back to our main topic of discussion, now that we have a projected nest egg balance, as well as our annual projected expenses, it's just a matter of seeing whether your retirement income can cover costs. If you haven't pulled your Social Security statement already, I urge you to go to ssa.gov and pull a copy so that you can see what your projected benefits are. Add yours and your spouse's Social Security together, and that'll give you a fixed income. If you're one of the few who have pensions, add that along with your Social Security benefits. From your retirement nest egg, apply a withdrawal rate of, say, 4%, and that'll be your variable income. The 4% rule gets a lot of crap because many say it's unrealistic, but again, it's just a guideline. You can adjust it to 3% if you don't feel comfortable with that high of a withdrawal factor. For example, a 4% withdrawal rate for a nest egg of $1.4 million is about $56,000. That is gross of taxes, so you'll want to deduct about 18 to 20% for taxes. Using examples of the couple from earlier, let's say we estimate $56,000 a year from withdrawals, from the retirement nest egg, and about another $54,000 a year from Social Security benefits. That puts a retirement income of $110,000 a year before taxes. As long as that number is higher than your projected retirement expenses, then you know you're in good shape. As I mentioned in another episode, I urge you to tweak the income number with a decrease in Social Security to see if your portfolio can sustain a higher withdrawal rate. If Social Security drops by the anticipated 25%, you'll need to increase your withdrawal rate from 4% to 5% to compensate for the lost benefit. And that's it for today, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode on retirement income planning. Most of us will have the opportunity to retire once in our life, so I urge you to take the extra effort to determine whether the money moves you have made will set you on the right path. Until next time, I wish you and your loved ones the very best. The podcast reflects the opinions of the hosts. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of a security. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be the basis of any investment decision. Investment advice is offered only through a signed management agreement with Juncture Wealth Strategies, LLC, a registered investment advisor.